Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. Last week, there were um, a slew of fabulous decisions out of the Supreme Court impacting important things like religious freedom and our First Amendment uh, freedoms, uh, free speech. And we'll be talking to two attorneys who have a wealth of knowledge about these cases, including Kelly Fiedereck of the Alliance Defending Freedom and also Ed Whalen from the Ethics and Public Policy Center about a very interesting win from the Supreme Court on keeping the Sabbath day holy for someone like a postal worker who doesn't like to work on Sundays. First, however, we delve into the rich life and great faith of Cardinal John Henry Newman, Saint Cardinal John Henry Newman, one of my personal favorites, with Father Juan Velez. He's out with a fabulous authoritative new book on Cardinal Newman. It's called A Guide to John Henry Newman, His Life and Thought. Father Juan Velez is a former physician and now he's an Opus Dei priest and he's known around the world for his expertise in the life of Cardinal Newman. We're very glad to have him on with us today. Welcome to the show, Father Juan. Thank you, Gracie. It's great to be back with uh, Conversations with Consequences. Wonderful. Yes, you've been on with us before. You are a Cardinal Newman expert, and you've written two or three books already and edited this one on Cardinal Newman. And you and I share a, a great love of Cardinal Newman. That is how, I should say, Saint John Henry Newman. And that is how you and I um, connected, I think, and, and on, on, a, on a really wonderful level because, right. um, unfortunately, he's, a, he's not a saint that uh, is, is that, that easily accessible, I think, to the popular mind because he doesn't have, um, like, the, the story of a father, Damien, for instance, caring for the lepers or some spectacular story like that. But but he has a spectacular mind, and he had a spectacular heart, and, and a spectacular theology. So you and I both agree that Cardinal Newman is is, is a saint for our times, uh, which I think is the title of one of your books. Definitely. And uh, so you've gone ahead, and I, I explained a little earlier in the intro, that you've edited a wonderful book about John Henry Newman, A Guide to His Life and Thought. What? Why was this book necessary, Father? Well, Gracie, it's a, it's a fresh look at, at St. John Henry Newman after his canonization, and uh, it's a book that uh, by many uh, scholars uh, who want to present uh, major aspects of Newman's life and his thinking, and uh, it's something very necessary today in our culture, in our culture which has seen such a, um, a downturn, such a, a loss of, of values and in our society in which uh, Western culture is so uh, demeaned, criticized, uh, and people are left almost uh, uh, without bearings, without a direction. Everything seems to be in array. 
the family, religion, uh, uh, reading, literature. So I think that uh, Newman has a lot to say about all these things, and so that's it's. And, and this is a fresh, a fresh book, a fresh look at at what he, what he at his life and thought. Many of our listeners who don't know much about Cardinal Newman are list, are hearing the word Newman and they're thinking of their Newman centers at their at their universities or at their children's universities. My children, for instance, uh, the ones who've been to college already, were very connected to their Newman centers. And I think what you're referring to is that that connection between Cardinal Newman and education, right? The education, um, the way that we fill our lives with meaning by by setting down our feet in the foundations, right, of of real knowledge and and real real meaningfulness. Um, yes, and, and sorry. So, no, go ahead, Father. Where your son uh, studied at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, that was the first Newman Center in the United States. Oh, uh, followed it's a fabulous closely by, place. yeah, followed, right. Followed closely by one in um, in uh, in Madison, I think, uh, uh, Wisconsin, and and they're named after Cardinal Newman. The, the first Newman Center was in Oxford shortly after his death, but the first in the United States, maybe the second one in the world, was there in Philadelphia, and and Newman wants to help people to broaden their mind and to think critically in a good sense. Here's a here's a quote I found in the book. It's uh, in the chapter by Paul Shrimpton on Newman as an educator, and he thinks he talks about what education is. Is he says to open the mind, to correct it, to refine it, to enable it to know and to digest, master, rule, and use its knowledge, to give it power over its own faculties, and it, and it continues. It's very beautiful. We we. we uh, we're not taught to think, to reason well nowadays. We're taught to just see sound bites, or, or to say, "Well, that's what I feel." It's such a such an impoverishment of of the human person and and, and what it means to to educate and to be an educated person. It's very sad because the the uneducated mind, the mind that is not not able to grasp uh, ideas and and um, digest them. And understand them, and then make them work right with everything else that's going on in, in in history and in one's head and 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 the environment is an uneducated mind is a mind that's easily led astray, and and can be used by by ugly ideologies, which sure. nowadays yep. are, seem to be rampant everywhere we look. Um, ugly ideas of what it means to be human, not just ugly but untrue and um, extremely damaging. Right. You're 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 basically adrift because you don't you don't know what to hold on to. You don't know what is true, what is beautiful. Everything's up for grabs. Everything's the same. As as we were I think discussing earlier, there's uh, ignorance is such a, a great scourge of of men and women in society today. And the promoters of woke take advantage of this this woke ideology, which uh, which uses uh, social Marxist tactics to undermine Western culture, Western civilization, and uh, it it's built on this defense of the so-called defense of the oppressed. But what it does is using that to create class struggle and division, and spreading ideas of suspicion, suspicion of anything that has to do with authority or is based on tradition. So what is particular about Cardinal Newman's thought and theology and his philosophy that 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 could protect people from this uh, from this kind of ideology that that d just destroys everything in its path? Well, as you were saying, to uh, to learn how to reason, to digest, to analyze, to make right judgments, 
and, and that requires uh, that requires study study of of classical literature i, I know you you read a lot uh, study of not only classical literature but also uh, literature of the recent centuries uh, that that is all already classical uh, serious studies of history it requires for us uh, catholics uh, a, a study of the catholic faith and as i was thinking of our interview today it involves also also things such as listening to to classics like Beethoven and Vivaldi and Bach. If, if if we don't if we've never heard this or we don't listen to this, then then we we're missing a great deal. We're missing a great deal of 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 what it makes us what makes of, of what's beautiful in 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 mankind. I, I was thinking of also what the definition of culture could be, and here's a poor stab at this. But I wrote I wrote this morning. Culture is a rich repository of all that is good, true, and beautiful in mankind and society. And much of it, as we know, has been inspired by great religions, especially Christianity. And there's another thing about culture, that it creates respect for people and the common desire to work for the common good, rather than the destruction, the hatred, the division that we see in woke woke ideology and other similar ideologies. That's a beautiful definition of culture, but I'm not sure that the, the, the your average uh, student at, at a university is getting that definition. I would say probably the, the definition they're getting is culture is the, the, the constant battle, the bloody battle, no, between competing ideas and, right. and the oppression of one group over another is probably what they're really hearing right now. Yeah, and yeah, the and, general and, culture yeah. is the oppressive system that won, perhaps. Right, right, and and so uh, it, there's a it's a methodology of suspicion, creating suspicion, and, and saying the underdog is good, and uh, and everyone else is bad, and it's this, this idea of suspicion. Um, yeah, we've we've really we've really gone very far, very far. Um, you know, I, I'm haunted by the idea of the statue of Junipero Serra, Saint Junipero Serra, being splashed with paint and being toppled uh, in a, in, El, in Carmel, California. It, it's really horrendous. It shows us how how low we've gotten. Uh, this man who did so much for the indigenous in California, teaching them the faith, teaching them uh, trades. Respecting them as human beings, protecting them, the protecting them from the depredations of others. Right, it's just so people are led by slogans and and, and real real ignorance. And, and the same could be said for for people who tear down statues of Confederate generals or other leaders, mm-hmm. regardless of their views. It's kind of trying to just put aside any 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 consideration of anybody that they don't agree with. So so we, we have a, a big task before us. And and I think Newman, because he, he started a university, as you know, in, in Ireland, and then started a, a school and a high school in, in Birmingham, England. And he wrote about education. I think Newman can inspire many people. And so I, I'm, uh, I'm very excited about this book and about um, uh, about what Newman has to say to us about education. One of the things uh, that Newman um, wrote about a lot, and, and other people, when they when they think about Newman, they think about um, where he fits in this idea of liberalism, what liberalism is, and what liberalism in religion is. And I think that there's some argument as to to where uh, Newman falls. What, what, what would you say to that, Father? Uh, well, one one of the good chapters in this book. Uh, 
in this volume, A Guide to John Henry Newman, is a chapter by David Delio, and it's, a, it's, titled, it's titled Liberalism, Personal and Social Aspects in His Thought. Um, I would be hard pressed right now to summarize any uh, the chapter, <laughs> That's a, and it's but, a long but, it's a long chapter, but, but it's a good chapter. And he basically um, he basically uh, uh, shows uh, how how for Newman um, liberalism was something that he uh, first of all it wasn't a, a political category that he had in mind. Uh, and it wasn't liberalism in the sense of liberality, of gener generosity, greatness of, of soul. Liberalism was uh, was this uh, uh, basically uh, anything goes. This uh, this way of looking at things that is a, a lack of objectivity, and uh, so relativism, mm -hmm. moral relativism, and religious relativism, which is so prevalent. And and David Dalio does a very good good examination of how the word liberalism. Uh, was used in the in, in the nineteenth century, and how uh, how Newman used it, and uh, Newman, as you probably recall, and some of the re uh, listeners, at the end of his life, he when he became a cardinal, he summed up that you know my life struggle has been against liberalism, liberalism in religion, mm -hmm. uh, to to um, to think that religion is whatever I think, whatever I feel, uh, rather than objective truths. That that is that that uh, Bilietto speech I think it's called with right. the speech that he gave when he was made cardinal. To me, it was uh, has been a very uh, was very momentous when I when I read it and I digested that that speech because uh, I I feel like that's the maybe the the cardinal problem in our in our society in many ways and even amongst many Catholics is the idea that. There are no fixed things, right? That everything's an opinion and everything um, can shift at a moment's notice. Many And many Catholics are feeling maybe a little lost these days because things don't seem fixed, even within the church. Um, and, yeah. and, and I know Cardinal Newman uh, was very much um, interested in the development of doctrine as opposed to the idea that new doctrines just appear overnight. What, what, what did he have to say about that and the way that the church develops new doctrines? Yeah, he has a, a great deal to say. Uh, there's there's a, another good chapter here by Tracy Rowland, who's a, a well-known scholar, and it's, it's precisely on development of doctrine. And um, the... Uh, the uh, and, and I just read a very good book called Newman on Doctrinal Corruption, um, uh, by a uh, by a scholar in um, uh, well, who, uh, Matthew Levering, but anyhow, N Newman Newman said that we have to uh, we have to uh, test uh, doctrines. We have to see if they uh, are in keeping with earlier doctrines, or or if they contradict the earlier doctrines. He says that it's natural for for doctrine to grow and to develop. And that things have developed over time since the preaching of our Lord and the apostles, but we have to uh, we have to examine those doctrines and see if those doctrines are a true development, uh, or or if they contradict the earlier doctrines. And then he said that that God, who has a, who has a, had in mind that there would be development of doctrine, that he 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 uh, brought about a an authority in the church. That would 
judge uh, would be an authoritative judge about about whether doctrines were true development or not, and and this means that um, that the the, the church, uh, the, the bishops gathered with the pope over time, have to study different uh, different uh, truths or or um, articulations of the truth to see if they if they, if they truly are authentic developments or not. And this happens over time. It doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen in, in in a year or two or a few years. But over time, and always keeping in mind uh, the tradition of the church, uh, the teaching of the saints, the teaching of prior councils. So that he probably would not be in line with the German synod that, <laughs> as we as we approach the synod of synods and and their ideas of of doctrinal development, which seem to, which seem to so many of us as a kind of jumping off the cliff. Uh, for Catholicism, yeah. right? There's a lot of there's a lot of confusion. It's um, it's uh, it, it's really another uh, another Protestant Reformation. People attempting to uh, to set up their own uh, doctrines and their own beliefs that suit them, um, and th- disregarding tradition, disregarding the teachings of the Scripture. Uh, uh, th- well, so the yeah, there is there's a lot of confusion, and and this this requires reading and studying, and I, I think Newman in, in this teaching on idea of development, and I'm I'm reading this his book right now, the idea of development of Christian doctrine. It's very very good. It's it's hard reading, but it's very good. Uh, in any case, since we're talking about a guide to John Henry Newman, I, I want to encourage people to uh, to to give this book as as a gift. To a teacher, a priest, a friend, uh, because this is a way of of, um, of helping um, people to to understand the faith, to teach the faith, and helping, frankly, our culture, helping our our culture, uh, because Newman was a man who was a uh, he was a, 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 he was a historian, he was a student of the classics, he was a as Michael Pakalik says in his book, he was a moral philosopher. Uh, he was also a religious poet, as Barbara Wyman explains. Um, he, he was a man who, who, who was deeply immersed in culture, uh, the, the very best things of, of mankind, of our history. And so he, he, he's, a, he's a real encouragement and, uh, to, to everybody who's concerned about preserving and, and strengthening our, our, our cultural values. Father, he was also a man that, even though he's from the 19th century, he wrote in the, he lived and wrote in the 19th century. He seems to be uh, he seemed to be right in right with his finger right on the pulse of of the of all the the problems of modernity that would that that we're seeing playing out right now. Um, yeah. the, this idea yeah. of complete uh, disengagement from the cultural past, from the classics, from from received tradition from um, basically everything. I mean, when we see the chaos around us, what we see are people who have lost their anger. And I feel that that's what Cardinal Newman was writing about way back when, right? Like, where is that anger? Yeah. Is, it in, is, it in our, is it in the past? Is it, and also in our conscience, also in the magisterium and in tradition and in revelation. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that part of the reason is that he was writing in the, at the start of the Industrial Revolution in England, in a growing materialism, and with that materialism, 
and, and, and the growth of, of the empirical sciences, and so that was giving rise to some agnosticism and, and even some atheism. And, and also in, in religion, it was giving rise to uh, ideas that put uh, into question biblical truths. And so, so Newman was at the, was thinking about those things that are still very much very, very alive. And so he was giving, um, pointing to some answers. Um, I, I think that, um, uh, yeah, I, for example, he, he writes, um, he writes to the English Catholics, he says, uh, your strength lies in your God, in your conscience. Therefore, it lies not in your number. I want a laity, not arrogant, not rash in speech, not disputatious, but men who know their religion, who enter into it, who know just where they stand. So he, he was really challenging the laity. I mean, it's not only the laity, it's, it's all, all, all the faithful, but in a special way, the laity to know their faith and, and to know, and, and to know uh, about culture and about to, to know the natural law. Father, you he, wrote, he, you wrote a, a chapter called His Farsighted Understanding of the Laity's Role in the Church. So was he ahead of his time when thinking of the laity? And the role in the I th church? I think so. I think so. And he was, um, he was, um, since he since he came from the Anglican background, he was an Anglican. Um, he he did benefit from the uh, the sense that, well, the laity have a uh, have an importance, and it's not just the clergy, not just uh, so. But yeah, he he rediscovers or, or for 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 Christians the the importance of a well formed laity. And today we celebrate in the church, uh, June 26th, the, the Feast of St. Jose Maria Escrivá, who did that in the 20th century, who reminded us that the that the lady are called to holiness of life, and and they have to to um, to be to form themselves and to know the faith and to teach the faith to others. But yes, Newman was a um, was a, uh, a pioneer in this. Before this, St. Francis de Sales had done this in the in the 17th century, but Newman is this great pioneer of this in the in the 19th century, uh, and he he invites all of us to to take seriously education. and And I think, and we all hear news about um, school board meetings and and meetings at, at schools and the, to decide on what children learn. And, and we know what children are being taught in California, New Jersey, Massachusetts. Uh, grade school children mm -hmm. about human sexuality—it's really deplorable. And and we need we need the, the the laity, especially the lady, to stand up and say this is not going to happen with my tax dollars in my township in my school. Yes, leadership has to come from 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 the laity, from the parents, from people out in the community saying no more, not here, <laughs> right? It can't just be right. from I, the top I, down. I. I uh, I know you're not saying it, but I know you you work in in state uh, promoting uh, good standards of education, and I'm sure some of the listeners are. And I I, I really um, I compliment all of you who do that because you're you're you, it's only your right, but you're but you're brave to do that, and I encourage you to to to, to ask God for for help to, to continue to do that. So, Father Juan, your book is called A Guide to John Henry Newman, His Life and Thought. And again, it's a, you edited the book and wrote one or two of the chapters, and there's wonderful chapters in it. It's long, it's, uh, it's authoritative, and it's meant to, to place a marker um, in, the, 
in the, the scholarship of John Henry Newman and his theology, so that I think in many ways, and disagree with me if, if this isn't true, in many ways so that he can't be hijacked uh, by, by people who, 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 don't, who, who aren't able to comprehend him fully. Is that true? Yes, yes, uh, I, I like that. Uh, he should be hijacked by the Newman Centers. Yes. <laughs> if, if you're near a Newman Center, give a copy to, to, to the director of the Newman Center or to the chaplain. Uh, help us to, help me to, to promote uh, the study of Newman because it will do a great good for us in the church and in society. Where and, can, and I thank you for this opportunity. Oh, of course, Gracie. Father. Where can, our, where can our listeners buy your book for themselves or to give to um, a scholar, a high school, a, a Newman Center, their friend who's a college professor? Where can, where can they find this? Yes, at the website of the Catholic University of America Press. Wonderful. And, uh, and if they write CT10, they get a little discount, <laughs> CT. But anyhow, the Catholic University of America Press, and uh, I was I'm excited to have been able to speak with you, Gracie, about about Saint John Henry Newman. No, it's been wonderful, Father Juan. I I, I commend you. I commend you on a beautiful project, and hopefully, um, maybe even next week, we'll have one of the other authors of of the of one of the chapters to talk to us in depth about one of the other wonderful um, lights no, that John, that Cardinal John Henry Newman Saint, Cardinal John Henry Newman lit for us back in the 19th century. So thank you, Father. That would be good. That would be very good. Thank you. Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we aim to change and improve the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Conversations with Consequences is the radio show of the Catholic Association. Again, at thecatholicassociation.org, you can read more about our work defending religious liberty and the church on the in the public square and in the media, wherever we can be helpful. You can sign up to our daily clips, uh, which will send to your inbox the, the important news of the day, short, uh, short, s- short summaries um, of the important news of the day, important to Catholics. And that's an easy sign up on our website. week leading into the 4th of July holiday when we as a country celebrate the foundation of our nation and not just its birthday, but even more than that, the foundational principles of our country, which are so high and noble and have made of our country the shining light on the hill that it is, the the beacon for people who are oppressed the world over and, and an example to so many other countries. This last week, SCOTUS delivered on so many of those promises that are built into our constitution. So wonderful news, and we want to talk to um, a couple of lawyers about some of these cases. We're going to start with senior counsel Kelly Fyodorek of the Alliance Defending 
freedom. The ADF worked, uh, defended the case of Lori Smith of 303 Creative out of Colorado. And this case established that Colorado cannot enforce a state anti-discrimination law against a Christian website designer who was asked to create a same-sex wedding celebration website because it violates her First Amendment rights. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. This case uh, was a huge win for the ADF, and I congratulate you. You, The ADF has been, the Alliance Defending Freedom has been front and center on so many important cases that uh, are defending those those high and noble foundational principles of, of our country. And I, I think the word foundational is important since we just celebrated the July 4th weekend. In this case, the most important rights that we have as Americans is uh, our First Amendment rights, uh, in, in which um, we're defending, we can't be coerced into saying things that go against our, our beliefs. How did this case play out as far as that, as far as our First Amendment rights? Well, you're absolutely right. It is a foundational freedom, and the Supreme Court rightly reaffirmed that the government cannot force anyone to say something that they don't believe that goes against their their deepest convictions. And it's a win for all of us, regardless of, of what our beliefs are. This decision protects everybody, whether you're a pro-life photographer, whether you're a Democrat speech writer, whether you're an LGBT graphic designer, the, the Supreme Court made very clear that Each and every one of us has that freedom, has that right to pursue truth and to speak consistent with the core of who we are. Kelly, I'm not a lawyer, and probably most of our listeners aren't either. I'm confused about something. It was only five years ago that I thought that this was already settled. I'm sure all our listeners remember there was the case of Jack Phillips, again, out of Colorado. He was a baker, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. He he didn't have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, that that was a violation of his... that was a violation uh, for him. How? Why did this come up again? And what's the difference between these two cases that it had to be further elucidated? Colorado has exhibited uh, a pattern and practice of censoring speech. You're correct that they uh, have gone after Jack now for over a decade. Uh, the first case with Jack Phillips, the Supreme Court decided that case purely on free exercise grounds. So the court said there that Colorado had demonstrated such hostility toward Jack and towards his religious beliefs that that violated the Constitution. But because that that violation was so egregious, the court never reached uh, the question of whether or not Colorado's misuse of its law violated Jack's free speech rights. So that that question was still out there. Can a government misuse you know, a, a public accommodation law, non-discrimination law to censor speech. So that was the the question at the heart of 303 Creative was, can the government compel speech? Can it censor speech? And the court resoundingly said it cannot. That is, that is a bedrock principle to our nation's founding that the government can't force its preferred message on Americans, but that Lori Smith and others are free to continue to speak consistent with who they are. Notably, the court also said, though, that non-discrimination principles remain firmly in place under this decision. And that's important because people can and will continue to have access to goods and services. And at the same time, the government won't be able to force them to say something to create speech that, that violates their beliefs. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because the I've seen a lot of criticism on the left, on the liberal side against this, this decision. Um, that and, and the criticism 
and I keep hearing this and it doesn't make any sense to me because it seems very natural that a, a person shouldn't have to make something, create something that is completely against their beliefs. And, and that's so that seems so fun, so basic and essential in a free society, right? But I keep hearing the criticism that, um, well, this means that um, if, a, if, a, if a patron wearing a MAGA hat goes into a coffee shop, then now the coffee, the barista is free to deny that MAGA wearing hat person service. How are people getting this so wrong? Well, I think there's a fundamental confusion between access to basic goods and services like coffee, like a hotel room, like being able to you know, go to the movies, for example, that versus speech, where speech is in play, the First Amendment ply applies and the government cannot compel it. They can't censor it. They can't violate people's ability to speak clearly. That's very different than being able to have access to, to goods and services. And in Lori's case, Lori serves everyone. doesn't matter who they are. She has clients who identify as LGBT. For her, every project she's asked to create, she looks at what message am I being asked to promote or to celebrate? It's always about the message. It's never about the person who's asking for the project. And, and that's as it should be. You know, non-discrimination laws have coexisted with the first First Amendment for years, and, and government officials have never, never needed to compel speech to ensure people aren't denied goods and services. And so the government can't label people's speech now as discrimination in order to censor it. These two have coexisted for a long time. They will continue to under this court's decision. Now, what's the difference between, and this is another distinction I've heard as, as criticism, the difference between speech, which is speaking, and baking a cake or creating a website? And, and is this a sticky distinction or not? No. Oh, and the court was was very clear in its decision that the written word, the written word even online is protected, that that is speech. When you're communicating, when you're expressing a message, whether that is on a website or whether that's through designing and putting a message on a custom cake, <clears throat> that is speech. And the, the co-government shouldn't be able to, to violate that. I mean, the court was very clear that, you know, tolerance, not coercion, is our is our nation's answer. And, and we, as, as a country, country, we were rich and complex in terms of having that diversity of so many viewpoints. And it's the government's obligation and duty to respect everyone's beliefs and not to force one particular message because cultural cultural wins, political wins, they shift over time. We, we see that throughout history. And that's why fundamentals of the First Amendment are so important to allow a free and flourishing nation. Kelly, is this a case that can give uh, some hope to people who have found that our country is becoming more and more censorious? People who find that if they say something on social media, they may lose their jobs because what they say is unpopular. Is this kind of thing a, a, a win for free speech in general? Absolutely. It's a landmark victory for all Americans, regardless of one's beliefs. It, it says for everyone, regardless of whether you're a Christian or an atheist, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, regardless of, of what you believe, this should be good news. People should be celebrating that the Supreme Court has said every American has the right to say what they believe without fear of government censorship our government punishment. Well, thank you very much, Kelly Fyodorek of the Alliance Defending Freedom. And again, congratulations on a wonderful win at the Supreme Court, a win for all Americans. Thank you so much. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we continue our conversation about 
wonderful wins out of the Supreme Court this past week. Right now, we turn to a real legal eagle, Ed Whalen of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Gracie. We were just speaking to a a lawyer from the ADF that defended the wonderful 303 creative case, um, which was a religious liberty case, but SCOTUS um, had another wonderful case (laughs) that they decided, which is Groff versus DeJoy, and that's uh, a case um, in which, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, a postal worker was asking, because of his faith, not to work on Sunday, and he was being denied. And the Supreme Court uh, um, said that he had the right to work on, uh, to not work on Sunday. So tell us what what that case was, what grounds was that decided on? Uh, sure. Well, actually, the, the court did not end up ruling for the postal worker so much as it said that the courts below had applied the wrong legal standard, and it sent it back to to the courts, to the court below to, to work out. This is a question that arises under a federal law called Title VII, which um, bars discrimination on various bases, including on the basis of religion. And the question becomes when an employer is required to provide an accommodation to an employee uh, in light of the employee's uh, religious convictions or you know, faith obligations, as you, as you indicated in this case, uh, the employee uh, sought not to work on Sunday. And what happened back in the 1970s, in a somewhat confusing opinion, is the, uh, the court indicated that uh, that it would be rare that an employer would ever have to accommodate uh, an employee who had religious objections. It used the term uh, de minimis uh, in the course of his opinion to say that if there were any de minimis, that is, any minimal burden on, on the employer, uh, it wouldn't have to uh, accommodate the employee. And that was uh, viewed um, has has been viewed as an outlier. And uh, basically, the court in, in this case said, no, that's the wrong standard. Uh, we instead say that the employer um, ha- uh, has to show that the burden of granting an accommodation to the employee would result in substantial increased costs uh, in, in, in how it carries out its business. Now, that is an admittedly um, vague standard, but it's a more demanding standard than the de minimis standard. And um, for that reason, the, the postal worker has some prospect of, of uh, prevailing uh, back in the lower court. This was, uh, how, how was this case decided? This was a unanimously decided case? Yes, this was a, a unanimous opinion uh, by uh, Justice Alito, and I think part of the unanimity may have come from the fact that the court, you know, did not uh, go ahead to try to uh, apply the standard it set forth, leaving that uh, to the lower court. But the uh, and all of the justices were were in agreement that uh, the case from the 1970s had at least been interpreted in a way that was um, uh, not sufficiently. Um, respectful of the employee's religious liberty rights. The case that we spoke about uh, with with the ADF lawyer just before um, was not decided unanimously. It was six to three, and and um, on the on on the on the side of crit- the people who are criticizing that decision about the Colorado web designer uh, are saying that this was that the justices were politically motivated or that they're they're deciding things on their based on their own ideology. But this one is unanimous. Um, does that give any any that doesn't it sounds like that's not going to give any uh, credence to the other side um I mean, it's not going to help the other side understand that these things aren't being ideologically um, uh, decided by by 
by, for instance, the six justices who who upheld the, the wedding designer's case. D- is that true? Well, look, I, well, I think the result in 303 Creative should have been unanimous. I think it's, uh, uh, I find it very difficult to, to take seriously the dissent by Justice Sotomayor. I don't think she actually uh, squarely engages with the very uh, narrow ruling of the majority. Instead, there's a lot of uh, fear-mongering about uh, supposed implications. So, uh, look, it's uh, very easy um, for critics of the court to to simply assert that the, the, the justices are being um, political. But when you actually get into the uh, weeds of the opinion, I think uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion there uh, is a very strong, uh, as is Justice Alito's uh, unanimous opinion uh, in the Groff case. What in, in this case, in the Groff case, how do you see this playing out? Like, in, in what situations would would a would would somebody require religious accommodations? Because maybe 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 it's hard in our in our current society for us to to imagine uh, situations where employees could say, "No, I I simply can't go. I can't do that." And, and you have to, as an employer, help me out. What are, what are some things that, that, why is this important? Where are some things that we can be excited about in the future that, that uh, as employees, we could be defend, we could be protected? Well, various employees of different religions may have uh, different religious practices that they, they, they uh, regard themselves as obligated to carry out. Again, in Groff's case, it was not, not working on Sunday. You can uh, understand that there are uh, some people who have an obligation to pray at various times during the day and uh, may need to have uh, work breaks that enable them to do so. Uh, Maybe other circumstances in which, uh, you know, say there are, um, uh, there might be issues of uh, 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 staying kosher that could come up in some context. It's difficult to to, uh, um, conceive of all the uh, different respects. Um, You know, maybe there are, one, one could imagine that uh, someone would have an obligation—sorry, uh, a, a conscientious objection—to uh, sharing a, a locker room uh, with a uh, man who identifies as female. Uh, so um, there are a whole range of uh, possible uh, issues. Um, again, all involving sincere religious belief that could arise in a whole host of contexts. And what we have here is the obligation of the employer to uh, take those seriously. It I doesn't was... mean that it doesn't mean the employee wins. It just means that you know uh, you need need to uh, make sure you're you're considering this uh, this religious obligation. I was uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I, I attended a meeting and I spoke at a meeting of the Catholic Medical Association. I spent some time uh, talking with all the different doctors who were there who find it harder and harder to, to be doctors out in the world in the way that things are becoming less and less welcoming of, of people of faith and their, and their, and the need, their need to bring their, their faith to, to their work, right? That we can't, we can't do certain things um, when we have a belief uh, for instance, in the dignity of every human life, um, could this case uh, of Groff versus DeJoy give some 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 better um, some some hope to people like doctors who can participate, anesthesiologists, for instance, who can participate in removing the uterus of a healthy woman simply for gender dysphoria? Um, I think it well could. Uh, there may be other uh, uh, bases for um, objecting to that as well. Uh, and I would hope that uh, you know any any uh, 
decent employer would would recognize the the, the uh, conscious right conscience rights in such circumstances. Um, but but yes, indeed, um, uh, this, that's one example of a, a possible situation in which an accommodation would be required. Well, it's very then good news. I uh, the, these doctors that I was with, they they struggle very much. Um, I was thinking of an anesthesiologist who she she arranges her entire schedule around certain surgeries, and it's and it's very difficult on her um, because uh, it, it causes her a great um, it, well, it's an economic burden and and. That, that's quite substantial. She can't work on certain days, and, and she makes herself obnoxious to her employers. <laughs> well, it's very difficult for doctors, and it's going to get worse. I have a, a daughter who's pre-med in college, and I worry very much about the situation she's going to face. So I, I'm grateful for those doctors who are, who are standing up strong. Well, if she's a Catholic, she should definitely look out for the Catholic Medical Association. They have a wonderful um, undergrad and also graduate uh, for, the, for the medical students also um, and helping them along that way because it is it is a hard field now uh, for on so many on so many different levels thank you Ed Whalen so much um, I can't believe our time is up uh, thank you for talking to us about the case of Grofter versus DeJoy which is another another great great uh, decision from the Supreme Court from last week thank you Ed thank you Gracie and now Father Roger Landry offers us as is customary a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel this is Father Roger Landry and it's a privilege for me to be with you we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When the Lord Jesus is going to give us one of the most incredible invitations we've ever received. And if we say yes to it, one of his most unbelievable guarantees. The God-man, our Savior, will say to us, Come to me, all you who labor and find life burdensome. That's the invitation. Come to me, all you who are working hard but can't see to fully get your head above the water, to feel secure. Come to me, all you who are burdened with anxieties of family life, work, schooling, age, or hell. Come to me, all you who are weighed down by sorrow, who are going through life with heavy hearts because you've lost a loved one or are worried about someone close to you. Come to me, all you who are pressed down by your sins and the harm sins always bring. All of you, come. After this invitation, he gives us an extraordinary promise, and I will refresh you. Think about what Jesus is saying. All you who have problems in human life, come to me and I will renew you. I will bring you back to life. I will make you see the blessing in what you see as a burden. That's what Jesus said to his listeners 2,000 years ago. Must have been shocked by so categorical a promise. And that's what he says to each one of us this Sunday. Are there any takers? Don't all of us need Jesus' help to bear heavy burdens? Many of us during these days have some vacation. Starting from the time we're students, we look to the summer as a kind of respite from the burdens of study or work. Today, Jesus is telling us not to look toward the beach or the mountains as the source of our refreshment, but to him. To understand better Jesus' amazing offer, we have to look at whom Jesus is summoning to this reinvigoration. There's a prerequisite, a condition to his call. Jesus addresses the invitation to those who labor and are carrying heavy burdens. He's not summoning to himself those who are lazy, who pass the buck, who don't roll up their sleeves and work up a sweat. He's not inviting those who are seeking a comfortable, easy life. To those in these circumstances, he calls them first to conversion because they're not yet ready to receive his rest. There's a good reason, because when Jesus says, follow me, he's not intending to lead us to a resort or a super yacht. He's going to lead us along the same path he trod, which was a hard-working path all the way to Calvary. That's why Jesus is speaking to those who are working hard, who are striving to take responsibility for their own life, for the life of their loved ones, for society, for their country, and for the church, who are pushing themselves in love to the limit, because it's only they who would recognize that rest with Jesus comes not through inactivity, but through a special joint activity 
with him, as we'll talk about later. Remember what Jesus a few weeks ago told us to pray for. He urges to pray the harvest master, his father, to send not bodies, but laborers into his vineyard. The way to our salvation and salvation of others in his vineyard is through responding to all his gifts with faith, love, fatigue, and perspiration. It's those who labor and they alone whom he promises to refresh, because it's only they who are capable of receiving this gift. For the same reason, Jesus is similarly not calling the proud, the arrogant, those who already think they know it all. He says in the gospel, I give you praise, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to little ones. Those who are wise and learned in their own eyes don't capture what Jesus is revealing or value his invitation because they don't think they need it. It's only the little ones, those who are humble, those who know how much they need the Lord, who alone know the worth of what Jesus wants to give them. Jesus himself is meek and humble of heart. In order to understand what he wants to reveal, in order to receive what he's giving, we need to become meek and humble too. And there are great consequences hanging on whether we do. Jesus said that to enter into his kingdom, to get to heaven, we need to become like little children. This is not a call to be childish, but childlike, simple, trusting, and obedient. If we think we already know it all, we really know very little, either about ourselves or the power and wisdom of God. We can't receive the refreshment of his kingdom without having a childlike, humble openness to it. The second thing we have to tackle is how Jesus promises to refresh us. He doesn't pledge to do so by taking away our burdens and labors. That's what most of us think we want. If we're dealing with the stress and fatigue of life, most of us think we want the Lord to remove our hardships so that we can live without stress or financial concern or anxiety over the situation of those we love without the need to put in hard-working days. We think we want the Lord to exchange whatever difficulties we have for an easier, more comfortable, relaxed life. That's not what Jesus knows is best for us nor wants to do. Immediately after inviting us to himself and promising that he will refresh us, he gives us the surprising means. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Jesus says that our refreshment requires two things. First, he wants us to come to him to learn. He is the master. He wants us to come to him directly and to learn from him, and more precisely, to learn him. That's why he has us come to Mass each Sunday, so that we can encounter him the master in sacred scripture and learn from him on the inside through holy communion it's also the reason why he wants us to pray each day because in prayer he continues to whisper to us the path to humility and meekness our restoration involves learning his wisdom his meekness his humility his gratitude his whole approach to life and that he is with us always risen from the dead until the end of time Second, we need to take Jesus' yoke upon our shoulders. What's that yoke? It's ultimately what he put on his shoulders, his cross. At first glance, it seems ridiculous that Jesus would call that yoke easy and light. After all, he fell three times under its weight, and it was the difficult instrument of his own painful crucifixion. What made him capable of calling it sweet and light is the love with which he bore it. The cross, and this is one of the most important things we learn when we learn him, it's not so much a sign of pain and suffering, but a sign of the love for the Father and for us that makes even that literally excruciating pain bearable. When the Lord says he wants us to learn from him and taking his yoke upon ourselves, he's telling us that we need to take his love upon us and bear our own crosses like he bore his. 
There's the great true story from Boys Town when a crippled boy with leg braces had difficulty walking. Other boys would take turns giving him a piggyback ride on their shoulders. A photographer in 1921 saw the scene and snapped a photo that soon became famous. When the boy carrying his lame friend at the time was asked by the photographer whether he was heavy, he replied, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. The love he had for his fellow orphan was so great that he was willing to bear the pain. That's what Jesus is talking about in the gospel. He's asking us to yoke ourselves to him in love, to embrace him as we face whatever labors and burdens we have. Like the kids in Boys Town with their crippled pal, Jesus the Good Shepherd bears each of us as lost sheep on his shoulders. and doesn't complain about the weight, for to him we're not heavy. We're his beloved brothers and sisters. The more we love him, the lighter and easier all our burdens will be too. What Jesus is teaching us is very challenging. That the way to the refreshment and rest we seek is not by liberation from our burdens and labors, but by uniting ourselves to him and allowing him to change us on the inside as we bear them. He doesn't remove our burdens, but changes them from something heavy and bitter to light and sweet. He doesn't eliminate the cross from our life, but changes how we bear it. This Sunday is an opportunity for us to look at the burdens we bear and the tough work we do to see how we can better unite them to him as gifts so that he through them can help us to become more like him. The best place for us to learn meekness and humility, the best means for us to be carried by him and strengthened to carry others, is at Mass. As Jesus says, come to me, and we carry each other as brothers and sisters to Christ at the altar. The Eucharist is the place where Jesus gives us himself within so that he might help us from the inside better bear our burdens. The Eucharist is the summit of Jesus' meekness and humility who loved us so much that he became our food under the humblest and meekest appearances of bread and wine. The Eucharist is the place where simply Jesus refreshes us. As we prepare for Sunday, Jesus makes his invitation anew. Come to me, all you who labor and find life burdensome, and I will refresh you. He's waiting for us to RSVP, to come with childlike humility and to receive the amazing fulfillment of the promise he guarantees. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 